Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 80 for the week of August 17th, 2008. This week's show is very special, as I'll be devoting an entire episode to a single segment, and more importantly, a single man. He is Richard M. Sherman, and you know him as one of the Sherman Brothers, the most successful songwriting team in history, and the name that defines the music and mood of so many Disney films and theme park attractions. Mr. Sherman joins me in this one-on-one interview about his career beginnings, time at the Disney Studios, working for and with Walt Disney, and the stories behind the stories of working on timeless classics like Mary Poppins and legendary songs such as It's a Small World and hundreds of others. I'll end the show not with announcements or voicemails, but instead with my small tribute to the work of the Sherman Brothers in thanks for Mr. Sherman joining me on the show and for a lifetime of memories he helped create. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very special episode of the WDW Radio Show. As I've always said, everything we see and experience in Walt Disney World is about a story. And it's a story that's being told to us, a story that we're an interactive part of. And story has always been of primary importance, not just in the parks, but of course in the movies. And the concept of good storytelling first came from Walt Disney himself. And an integral part of that storytelling in both films and in the parks is unquestionably the music. It sets a mood immerses and inspires us, and in many cases defines a film, a show, or an attraction. And it's what connects us, and for so many people, it's one of the reasons that they love Disney the way they do, and maybe even makes us believe in that Disney magic that we talk about as if it's a tangible thing. And the name that for decades has been synonymous with Disney music and classic films and theme park attractions is none other than the Sherman Brothers. And their credits read like a best of of Disney films, television shows, and attractions, having written more musical scores for motion pictures than any other songwriting team in history, including timeless classics like, you know, the music from Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, The Tigger Movie, theme park attractions like It's a Small World, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, so many songs from Epcot's Imagination Pavilion, The Tiki Room, and countless others. In 1965, 
They won two Academy Awards for Mary Poppins. They received nine additional Academy Award nominations, two Grammy Awards, four additional nominations, Tony nominations. They've had number one pop songs and an astounding 23 gold and platinum albums. So today, it is my absolute honor to be able to chat with a true Disney legend and one of the brothers from that creative team that has changed the world with their music, Richard M. Sherman. And Mr. Sherman, I want to thank and welcome you to the WDW Radio Show. Oh, thank you, Jay. It's great to be here and talking to you. And uh, I'm looking forward to whatever questions you're going to ask me. So shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's the thing with with so much that I want to talk to you about. It's almost difficult to find a place to begin. So maybe let's start with the simplest question, which would be, how did you and your brother start to become to work together and become a songwriting team? Well, actually, uh, it was almost uh, inevitable. Our father was a wonderful songwriter. His name was Al Sherman. And Al Sherman, in the 20s, 30s, and into the 40s, was writing uh, hit songs, very big songs that uh, today many of them are, are forgotten, but some of them still linger, like the, the famous football song, you got to be a football hero. That's one of his. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful song. And for the great Eddie Cantor, he wrote, Now's the Time to Fall in Love. Potatoes are cheaper. Tomatoes are cheaper. Uh, the older generation would know those songs. They were big, big popular hits. And uh, I got the bug, I guess, to, to be a songwriter when I was in college. I started writing songs for college shows, things like that. And my brother was going to write the great American novel. <laughs> he wanted to be a writer. And I wanted to write music and lyrics for, for plays and shows. And uh, what happened was, uh, after college, we both uh, were living in a little tiny apartment, and uh, my brother was writing the great American novel and digging a hole in the ground, and I was writing the great American musical and digging a hole in the ground. And our dad came up. He was this pop tune writer, and he said, I bet you guys couldn't write a popular song that some kid would give up his lunch money for to buy a record. And it was like a challenge. But he sensed that if we sort of pooled our wits and, and, and actually worked together as a team, we come up with strong ideas for pop songs. And so that's where it all started. And, and it truly is this. A song, a good song, has a story in it. And you always have to dig for that story, that, that angle, before you start going. I think that's the thing that attracted Walt Disney to our songwriting, is that we always had a kind of a hook, an, an angle. It wasn't just a, a straight-ahead statement. It was a song that it had a, a, either a question in it that made you think or a statement that made you think, a hook. And uh, basically that's what uh, Bob and I did. We started writing pop songs, and uh, through sheer luck, uh, a little girl named Annette Funicello recorded a song of ours called Tall Paul back in 1958, only 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that song in 1959 became a a top 10 song, a big hit. And Annette, who was a mouseketeer for the Disney organization, uh, needed new songs, and so they, the publishers at Disney Company asked us, do we have any more songs for Annette? And of course, we wrote song after song for her and made many records with her. And little did we know this, but she uh, was one of the pets of Walt's uh, organization, and he had discovered her and was listening, listening to all of the songs that she recorded. And basically what happened was uh, he said he was going to put her into a film, and he said, those two young fellows that are writing these cute songs, I'd like to meet them. Maybe they'll put a song into this picture I'm going to put Annette in because she's now so popular with songs. That's how we met the great man. And that sort of brings you up to a very crucial part of our lives, and that's when we met Walt Disney. 
And what was that first meeting like? You know, you're you're told now that you're going to be brought before Walt Disney, who obviously at the time, um, you know, was so successful with what he was doing. Tell me, what was that first meeting like for you? Well, um, I can remember very vividly what it was like because uh, it was a, <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, we walked into this the office. We didn't realize we were going to play the song for Walt Disney himself. We played it for, for this executive, music executive, and he said, yeah, that sounds like a great song for the picture. we got to play it for the boss. And I said, well, who's the boss? They said, well, Walt <laughs> Disney, of course. So I said, you mean we're going to play for this icon? We, we never realized we'd ever meet the man himself. We just uh, were in this office. And so he brought us uh, into the, the actual offices of Walt Disney, and he was sitting behind a desk, very occupied, writing, uh, signing some autographs or something like that. And... Uh, his opening line to us, are you fellas really uh, brothers, or are you just sort of using that name? Because when I was in Vaudeville, we used to have brother acts, and we never were brothers. And he, <laughs> he completely threw us, because he was so funny and, and sort of friendly. And we said, oh, no, no, we really have the same parents. And Mr. Disney says, no, call me Walt, call me Walt. He didn't like to be called Walt, uh, Mr. Disney. So, uh, so then he said, now let me tell you about this picture. And he launched into describing a picture that had nothing to do with the film that we had that we were written this song for. He was describing what became The Parent Trap, mm -hmm. the uh, Haley Mills picture. But we had written a song for a picture called The, F the Horse Masters for Annette Funicello. So he was into this long description of this picture, and uh, my brother, who's very brave, Bob, he said, uh, Mr. Disney, uh, Walt, he said, we, we have come with a song for Annette Funicello. We, we don't know about this other picture. So he says, oh, well, why did you let me go on like this? <laughs> How do you tell uh, this, this man, this world-famous man, that you're talking about the wrong picture? <laughs> to stop him. So he just said, okay, let's go to the other room and let's hear the song. So I played the song, the Strumman song for him, this little song we'd written for Annette. And he said, which, which is typical of Disney, he said, that'll work. Now, I wasted a lot of time on this other thing. So he actually had given us a huge compliment because Walt never said anything more than that'll work to people that, that were working for him because he didn't want to spoil them. He never said, wonderful, great, perfect. He would just say, that'll work. But at that time, we thought, well, that was kind of a put-down for this song. We'd slaved over, really worked hard to get a, the right song for, for that picture. So basically, uh, he started uh, on this other picture, and he handed us a script, and the script was called We Belong Together, and that was the picture that became... Uh, the the Parent Trap, which was our very first Disney major picture that we had done. Yeah, I, I tried to imagine what that must be like, and then hearing the story about how uh, you know you don't want to interrupt the man as he's on a roll. But you know, we'll we'll talk specifically about some of the films you worked on and some of the attractions. But you worked for Disney during really what was was a golden age for the studios. What was it like working with and, and for Walt Disney? Maybe what are some of your fondest memories during that time? Well, uh, I'd say that the, the thing about working at the D Disney studio under Walt was this. He was a member of the team. He was a, a, a great spark plug, a, a, a listener, a remarkable listener. He could discern what would work and what wouldn't work. Uh, he inspired everybody that worked for him. And everybody is trying so hard to please the boss. I mean, that, that was the whole thing. And if he told you a story, it was the most important story that ever was told by humankind, because he had this ability to hypnotize you, to get you so excited about some episode of Zorro or something that you just would kill yourself to write the perfect number for it, uh, or, or write the, the perfect dialogue if you were a scriptwriter, or design the perfect 
setting for if you were a, a setting designer. I mean, the whole thing was he was hypnotic about the way he inspired people. And it was great. It was wonderful working for him. He never talked about how much it's going to cost. And this is the bottom line. And this is the blue. This is this. And that. He never talked about that. It's just the quality of the product. And that's all he cared about. That abruptly changed when Walt passed away. It totally changed. But when he was alive, nobody ever thought about anything but doing a great job on the product. And obviously, like you said, we keep talking about story. And story was really of paramount importance to Walt. And I assume for you and your brother as well as you were writing the songs. Well, I think basically the, the, the key to our getting jobs as staff writers for Walt Disney was our sense of story. Because all good songs, as I said earlier, have good story in them, good hook lines. And uh, when we were handed eventually uh, a book called The Stories of Mary Poppins by Pamela Travers, Walt Disney knew full well that there was no storyline in the Mary Poppins books. They were just episodes. They were wonderful, wonderful episodes with their incredibly delightful character, Mary Poppins, and they had each self-contained storyline. So each chapter was another adventure. But there was no through line. Nothing really happened to the family. It's just that Mary Poppins would come into the Banks household to have wonderful adventures with the children and fly away again. So Bob and I, when we were handed this book, because one day he handed us the book, uh, after we had done about six or seven assignments that he had given us, and he liked them all, uh, he said, read this and tell me what you think. He didn't say, I need a song for this sequence, or I need a title song for this movie. He just said, read this and tell me what you think. And uh, Bob and I read the books, and we were thrilled by, by the fact that he gave us a book to read. And secondly, we were kind of disappointed because there was no storyline. So we said, let's take six chapters these two juicy, the six juicy chapters that we thought were really outstanding, put them together and make a story out of it. Let's say there's a problem in the family. Let's just say the father's not paying attention to the kids and the mother's off busy doing her things. And so Mary Poppins is needed. So she comes into the family and she changes things. She gives little life lessons to the kids and to the family itself and unites that family so that when she flies away, she's done a job. This was our concept. And we came in with a story concept, not just some song ideas or, uh, yeah, that's good, Walt, it could be something. We came in with a real idea. And also we came in with a period. We changed the, the, the stories from the 30s, which was Depression England, back to the turn of the century when it was still colorful and charming and English music hall style songs could be used. We came in with all these ideas. And so uh, we weren't just songwriters for him, we were story men. And we, when we sat down and talked about this uh, project of what it could possibly be, that's the day he said, you fellas really like to work. We said, we sure do, Walt. And he said, well, how do you like to work here? And of course, we, we were flipped. We flipped. We said, oh, my God, yes, sir, we'd love to. And that was uh, August, I think it was, of 1960. And so from that point on, we were the staff writers, and uh, we worked on everything. But it was always story, story, story. I mean, that was what it was all about, and that was the key to our being successful at Disney. And I think that's the fascinating part, is that you weren't just songwriters. You were really involved in the creative process of the films themselves, and I think that's why the songs work so well. Well, thank you. Uh, that's very nice for you to say that, but actually... We were very fortunate so that we weren't just uh, like augmenting or adding something to a, a film. We were actually helping to paint the picture. 
in our way. And sometimes it was merely a title song for a film, or sometimes it was a whole musical with uh, storytelling throughout and character development throughout. It all depended on the project. Each project was different. In all, we did about 36 films at the Disney studio in those years, and then we subsequently came back and did others. But uh, our tenure there was very, very, uh, let's say, prolific. <laughs> we worked every day, and we loved it. Well, you know, going back to, to stories and writing for the films, is it fair to say maybe that you wrote songs for the characters in the film, say, as opposed to the actors themselves, even though you had the benefit of working for, and writing for people like Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke and Louis Prima? Well, you, you're absolutely right. You said it all. I'll just, I'll just repeat what you said and say this. We wrote for the character. We never wrote for the actor. On rare occasions when we were told, we're going to have Maurice Chevalier in a film, we need a number for him, we could hear his, his voice when we were doing it. But when we, all the songs for Mary Poppins and in Jungle Book when Louis Prima sings, I want to be like you, I mean, we had no idea Louis Prima was going to do it. All we knew was that we were writing about this ape, and uh, we, we had to write a funny song about a scary ape and make him to be fun instead of scary. And so we made him the king of the swingers, and that gave us a jazz number. And be just like the other men. I'm tired of walking around. I mean, these are things we just wrote the song. And when we were finished with the song, then we would talk with Walt, and we would talk with the other producers and directors about casting. <clears throat> and then when we found the cast, the personality we wanted, we'd come and test him and make sure he was right. So all these things... Uh, are ingredients in the creation of the film. But in the case of the Sherman Brothers writing for Disney, 95% of all the songs we wrote, we wrote for the character and not for the actor. All right, well, around the same time as Mary Poppins, you know, early to mid-60s, the 1964-65 World's Fair is approaching, and you were asked to write for two attractions, The Carousel of Progress and It's a Small World. And I'm going to ask you, ask you, about each of these individually. But first, tell us about maybe the, the challenge of being presented with writing for an attraction versus writing for a motion picture. Well, each, each and every uh, uh, assignment that we had uh, was a individual into itself because if you're going to have to write for a, a stuffed teddy bear or, or, a, or a tiger, you know, that, that who's called Tigger, and it jumps around, uh, it's just as much of a challenge as to write for a, a concept that's a carousel of progress that's going to be putting people into this auditorium that swings around so that there are seven different or six different uh, stories that are being told. Uh, it, it, every, each one of these was an individual challenge, and it was fun. I mean, it was great because uh, we never knew what we were going to do one day to the next. I recall the first challenge was the carousel of progress. They were uh, uh, constructing this for the World's Fair, it was going to be sponsored by General Electric, and it was going to tell the story of how electricity has changed man's life and how well, we came from a, a, an ice cube sitting in a, in a bathtub <laughs> for cooling uh, uh, the, the house to uh, electronic devices. You know, it was just remarkable how, uh, how this was done and uh, depicted. It would take me two hours to even describe it. But let me just say we were given an assignment to, by Walt to write a song that would tell the story of, with, with broad strokes of how life has changed through man's ingenuity, man's uh, reaching further, uh, challenging the envelope and going further. 
And we had to have a kind of a song that would change in period from the turn of the century, which would be ragtime, to the jazz age, which would be uh, uh, jazz music, to the swing period, uh, which would be the 30s and 40s, the big band era, and into the 60s, which was when, when this uh, would be the current day at that time. And that would be the sweet music, like sort of Montavani strings and things. So basically, one song could be played in different, different guises, different uh, arrangements. And so all these were little buttons that were pressed to us. And then he said, and I need it yesterday, because he always <laughs> needed it right away. And so we would, we would write a song. Now, I remember vividly the, the inspiration for uh, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, which is the, the theme song for the GE Pavilion, which was the Carousel of Progress. And that was, uh, we started, we were talking about it, and we said, well, another one of Walt's big dreams, and then we have to sit there and create, create something for him. So he said, well, Walt has a dream, and that's the start. Now, we started with that, and he said, well, we can't ever say that in a song. <laughs> but if you listen closely to the lyric, there's a line that goes, man has a dream, and that's the start. He follows his dream with mind and heart, and when it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. That's all part of the lyric of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. And so basically, Walt Disney was the inspiration to the wellspring that gave us the, the key to writing that song. And he loved it. He liked the, 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 the play on the bees, great, big, beautiful tomorrow, and uh, shining at the end of every day, very optimistic. Of course, Walt was definitely an optimistic man. He liked to look at the bright side of things. And uh, it was Walt's song, and he loved the song very much. Of course, he never said anything, but that'll work to us. <laughs> <laughs> but to everybody else, he said, they wrote the perfect number for this, you know, and that was it. Uh, that was Walt's uh, way. And then uh, that was the one song for the World Fair, which became permanent attraction uh, at, the, at the parks. And then the other song that we wrote was It's a Small World After All. And here we were like troubleshooters, because they had this incredibly beautiful concept of, of a boat ride through the, the watery audio animatronics dolls all beautifully gowned and, and costumed singing and they were singing national anthems of the various countries that was the concept on paper and they put and they started recording these voices to do that and the the as you can imagine it was an absolute disaster because if you walk through this it was not boats at the time it was a mock-up and you'd walk through the serpentine trail and listening to these voices the first Three or four groups were kind of charming and delightful, and all of a sudden you heard nothing. It was all swishing together, and it was cacophony. And so Bob and I were called in to, to come up with a simple song that could be translated into any language, and it had to have sort of simple repetitions in it. And so we were told, write the simplest possible song that's saying the most you possibly can. <laughs> and, and it was a salute to the children of the world, and it was called UNICEF Salutes the Children of the World. I think that was the working title of it. And we said, Walt, can we come up with something better than that? He said, well, yeah, if you can. But remember, it's about the small children of the world. They're the hope of the future. And that, he gave us that to start with. And so we came up with this concept. It's a small world after all. Let's not blow each other up. Let's learn, learn to respect each other and love each other. And that's what we're saying without saying those words. We just said it's a small world after all. It's a world of laughter and a world of tears, a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share. It's time we're aware. It's a small world, after all. That's what we said in the song. And if you hear it as a jingle, you want to shoot us. But if you hear it slowly and hear the words, you say, hey, it is a prayer for peace, isn't it? And that's what we wrote.
and it became kind of the I, I'm told the most performed song in the world with all the parks that's playing it all the time, and uh, everybody knows it, which makes me feel very happy. Yeah, and I have to admit to to hear you sort of to hear the person that wrote the words uh, somewhat say and sing the words really is a privilege, and you know the, those four words even with all the amazing things that, that you and your brother have done, sort of immortalized you. And if, correct me if I'm wrong, the original way that you had written the song, um, you had originally thought about it to be performed in somewhat of a different style, correct? Oh, definitely. When we first wrote the song, uh, we, you know, when you write anything, you don't write it fast and in tempo. You write it slowly and carefully. And we were playing it and singing it, and Bob was coming up with wonderful words for it, and I was coming up with words on it. We were both working on the music because we collaborate on everything. We, we actually were writing it like a prayer for peace. And uh, there is just one moon and one golden sun. And a smile means friendship to everyone. There's so much, you know, though the mountains divide and the oceans are wide, it's a small world after all. That's what we're saying. Let's be loving and kind and reach out to people. But we didn't say to reach out to people and loving kind. We just sort of imply it because Walt would never want us to lay it down like a trowel, just put it on with a, with a feather. And so we just implied that. He loved impl- implied ideas. It was always, he was very quick to grasp an idea, like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It has nothing whatever to do with sugar and medicine. It has to do with an attitude. If you have a, a bright attitude about something, a sweet attitude, a tough job becomes easier. You look at the bright side of it. Feed the birds, toughens the bag. It has nothing to do with the price of of breadcrumbs, <laughs> two pennies to buy breadcrumbs. It says it doesn't take much to be kind and do a kind deed, to give love. It costs nothing. Tuppence is, is nothing, no money. It's just giving it from yourself, from your heart. But we don't say those words. We just say, feed the birds, tuppence a bag. And the implication was there. He always dug the fact that we imply things. And the same thing with small world. It was, it's a small world after all. And the after all is the hook. And you obviously followed your father's advice, which was to keep it simple, to keep it singable, but most of all, keep it sincere. Oh, my goodness, you really are a researcher. That was great. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he said to us when we were young, young guys starting out, and he, he made the challenge. He said, keep it simple, singable, and sincere. And as he was walking out the door, and he says, and make it original. <laughs> that was it. And so he'd always guide us in those early years till we finally got the right angle on things. I remember we had written many, many songs. It was Country music was very big back in the early 50s. And we finally wrote a song which we had a hook on, and he liked the hook. And that was, we wrote a song, a blatant line, gold can buy anything. And then we had a, a codicil, honestly, but love. Gold can buy anything but love. And he says, now you have a hit song. Now you have a possibility of a hit song. Go out and try to sell that one. And that was our very first published song. Uh, it wasn't a hit, but we it did get published. And really, in addition to It's a Small World, really two other very small words that really define, to a certain degree, your work is obviously Mary Poppins. Um, the, the oh, kid. yeah, well, that was, <laughs> that was a major, major jump for Bob and myself. You know, we, we had never done a full musical score. We had pictures with songs in them, and we'd had popular song hits and a couple of big ones. But the thing is that this was a giant, giant step forward for us. And, of course, it put us into the position of writing musical film. And that's what we started doing from then on. Most of our pictures were were musicals. Uh, But Mary Poppins was the perfect cast, the perfect creative team. I mean, 
my my praise goes out to so many people involved in that film, from Bill Walsh and Don DeGrotti, who did this incredible script, and Walt himself, who was hands-on the whole time, pushing everybody and pushing and and create, creating the the final product, and P Peter Ellenshaw, who did the incredible. Uh, Matt artist uh, who did the the mats. So they were there in in Burbank, California. We we were in Edwardian England because of his artistic creativity. I mean, there were so many people that contributed, and I haven't even mentioned this superlative cast with Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke and Glennis Johns and David Tomlinson. All these wonderful people that 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 were part of our cast. It was a, a labor of great love and great talent on many many. Uh, parts and Bob and I were lucky enough to be the, the songwriters we really loved working on it and helping with the story because that's what we did well I applaud you for crediting so many other people but I have to say that what you did and what your brother did on this work made this film the timeless classic that it remains and to your credit in addition to receiving your Oscar uh, you also coined a word that's that's a staple of every Disney fans vocabulary you put it to song <laughs> and you have to you have to allow me to just Step through the songs that you wrote for the film so as not to minimize your impact on it. A Spoonful of Sugar, Jolly Holiday, I Love to Laugh, Chim Chimmery, Feed the Birds, Step in Time, Stay Awake, Sister Suffragette, A Man Has Dreams, The Life I Lead, Let's Go Fly a Kite, one of my personal favorites, Fidelity, Fiduciary Bank, The Perfect Nanny, and of course, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I, I don't think that I'm exaggerating when I say that what you did qualifies as a, a, a true masterpiece. Well, you're very, very kind to say that. And, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I know Bob is, and, and we, we feel that it was a, a, a big, big leap forward for our career. And, and uh, we were very lucky, I think, to, to have a boss like Walt Disney who helped select what we were going to finally wind up in the film. Because, you see, as we developed this film, uh, we were developing many of the chapters that we were exploring to see which other chapters you might use. And so a lot of songs were written for the film that we never used. And we, some of them found their life in another, in another film. And we changed them a little bit and used them someplace else. But basically, the songs that were selected were really the, the very cream of all the things we were doing. And uh, they really were story. Each song had a story. Uh, part of the story was being told through the song. And I think uh, the key to a really good musical is if you don't have the songs, you don't have a picture. And I think that that's what we had here. We had uh, hunks of the story. I mean, just huge hunks of dialogue were just sung. And people didn't even realize they were hearing songs uh, performed when they, were, when they were doing it because it was so woven into the film. And that, my, one of my favorites of all the uh, songs in, in the picture is two reprises that we used near the end of the, the film when the father and Bert have a conversation and the father is he feels his life is falling apart because he he's been fired from the bank for for uh, causing a a, a a ruckus you know there was a run on the bank because his little boy didn't want to invest his tuppence in the bank <laughs> and so everything falls apart and he and he's very sad and upset and he says a man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche in the edifice of time and then he's feeling sorry for himself and and he says, it's Mary Poppins. She's the one that caused all this trouble. And then Bert pipes in and says, oh, yeah, she's the one that sings a spoonful of sugar. That's all it takes. Changes bread and water into tea and cakes. He says, tea and cakes, indeed. And they're having this conversation. It's all sung. The whole thing is musical comedy, the way it's sung. And that's a really 
well-integrated show. That's the way we were, we were writing it. It's that Poppins woman. She did it. I know the very person you mean. Mary Poppins. She's the one what sings. A spoonful of sugar, that is all it takes. It changes bread and water into tea and cakes. See, that's exactly what I mean. Changing bread and water into tea and cakes, indeed. No wonder everything's higgledy-piggledy here. And, and is it true that, that Feed the Birds really was a personal favorite of Walt's and one that he often would ask you to come in and sing and play for him on the piano? That's absolutely true. Walt uh, fell in love with that song because he, when he heard it the first time, uh, we, when at that first propitious meeting, when we first told him our ideas of how we could do Mary Poppins as a musical, he he asked at the end of that meeting, play that bird lady thing again. So I played, it was not completed, it was just about 16 bars. I, I sang it for him, and he listened to it intently, and he said, that's the whole story, isn't it? And he said, that is the story, Walt, that's the story. The father doesn't give the tuppence to the kids uh, meaning he doesn't give their attention. He does, he's so busy making money and supporting the family, he's not giving of himself to the kids. And the, and the mother is so busy with her life, she doesn't, so she has to have a nanny taking care of the kids because she's not doing it. So then, symbolically, at the end of the show, we have this song, Let's Go Fly a Kite. And the opening line is, with tuppence for paper and strings, you can have your own set of wings. And the father, mother, kids run out to the park and fly the kite. Now, that is all symbolic. It's Walt Disney way of doing things. He doesn't say, hey, listen, families, get together, go to Disneyland and enjoy each other. He doesn't say that. He says, let's go fly a kite. That, that's why Disney dug us, because we understood what he wanted to say to people. And that's, that's uh, the secret of the whole thing. I don't know. I think I drifted away from your answering your question. No, not not at all. It, it was beautiful, and and because "Let's Go Fly a Kite" is a personal favorite of mine, I can I, I really appreciate your your explanation of it. Well, um, I, you know, actually, it was that something came from our father. Our father used to make kites for us when we were kids. He said, you know, it's one thing is to to go out and buy a kite and fly it. That's great fun, and we used to do that too. But he says, but if you make a kite, then it's really yours, and it's a piece of you up in the air. And he used to make kites for us. And then we go out and fly them as youngsters. And we were trying to think of a good ending for the show that just came to our minds. We said, what about if the father mends the kite that was broken in the beginning of the movie? And he says, the heck with all this worrying about the bank. I'm going to take my kids out to fly a kite together. And they all go out and fly the kite. And people were crying at the end of the picture. Why? Because it's so pretty. It's a beautiful, it's a statement without insulting anybody by telling what it is. You just felt it in your gut. And that was, well, that's what we tried to do. And in answer to your question about Feed the Birds, yes, it was his favorite song. And many times on Friday afternoons, he'd call us up and say, what are you working on? And we'd come over and tell him, and he, we knew that's not what he wanted to hear. He knew what we were working on. He'd say, okay, play it. And he'd look out the north window of his office, and I'd sing and play Feed the Birds for him. He'd say, well, have a good weekend, boys. And then he'd send us home. <laughs> he was very sentimental. He loved that song. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, about five, six years ago, it was, uh, the uh, Disney uh, people decided to have this statue, this wonderful bronze large statue of Walt and Mickey Mouse called the Partners, officially dedicated at the Disneyland attraction out in Disneyland. And so they had a big ceremony on the 100th birth anniversary of Walt Disney's birth. 
And I was asked to come and play some of the songs we had done for the parks and, and some of the other things, which I did. And there were thousands of people, maybe 2,500 people out on Main Street in, in Disneyland. And uh, I remember I was playing this white piano and it was, there was a hush. And I finished playing one of the songs, a small world or something. And then I said, but uh, I'm going to play this one song just for Walt because it was his favorite. So I looked at the statue and I said, uh, this one's for you, Walt. And I sang and played Feed the Birds. And you could hear a pin drop in this, in this setting. It was just amazing. And toward the end of the song, just as I sang Tuppence, Tuppence, Tuppence of Ag, that spot there, one bird out of a clear sky, there wasn't anything, not even a cloud in the sky, came flying out of nowhere, right down, swooping under where I was at the piano, right past where I was at the piano and up into the sky again as I finished the song. And I heard an audible intake of breath. <sighs> coming from, from 2,500 people you know, on Main Street in, in, New York, in uh, Disneyland. And th then I couldn't even believe it. I said, what was, and then they applauded, of course, and everything. I said, what was that to one of the officials there? They said, well, Walt came down and said, thank you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, one bird came out of the sky. And I said, I can't believe this. Well, there was newsreels that were shot of that, and there's that bird coming right down as I'm finishing the song. So I know that Walt, Loved that song. Let me just say that. I think it was him. And I'm sure that everybody else that saw that felt the exact same. Without speaking a word, they all thought the same thing. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Because Walt was a great believer in people. He loved people. He loved that song because the song said, doesn't take much to give love. Give it. And now, to, to a testament to maybe Walt's the way he was in, in during this time in the late sixties, you're working for, for the company and you're asked to work on a non Disney project. You were asked to work on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with Albert Broccoli, your first project really in, in some time outside the company. Yet Walt gave you his approval to do this, didn't he? Well, actually, uh, Cubby Broccoli, who was the producer of all the James Bond films, uh, had acquired the one Ian Fleming story about the magical flying car that Ian had written for his, his son. Because uh, the son said, you write about Maseratis and you write about Porsches and all these fancy cars. Why don't you write a, a, a story about a car that I, I'd like to have? So he created this magical flying car, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, made the funny sound. And Cubby got the idea because he loved Mary Poppins so much. He wanted to have uh, Walt Disney co-produce with him. And he could, you know, get uh, all of the people. And, and uh, most of the people, like Dick Van Dyke, were independent. They didn't have to... Uh, get Walt Disney's approval, but Bob and I were under contract to Disney. So he wanted to do a co-production, and Walt's plate was very full, and he he didn't have the time or inclination to do a co-production. But he said, if you really like this project, and I like Cubby, I think he's a nice guy, a good a good man and a good producer, I think uh, I'll give you a leave if you want to take it. So we actually were given leave of absence from our exclusive contract with Walt Disney Productions to work in England with Walt Cubby. And that's the kind of a man Walt Disney was. He just gave us this permission. He said, it'll be good for your career to do an outside picture. And so we did Chitty Bang Bang, which was a huge hit for us. And yes, it was, <laughs> it was again, a tribute to the genius and the kindness of Walt Disney. And for you, Walt was right once again because you received your third Academy Award nomination. So yeah, that's right. We were nominated <laughs> for that, and uh, that was. And also, years later, it became a, a huge, successful uh, stage show, and uh, it's going to be coming back to the states a as a touring 
show very shortly. I think uh, latter part of this year. Excellent. I, I was a big fan um, of it when I was a child, so it's nice to know that it's coming to the stage like like so many of the other shows like Mary Poppins. But just back to Walt for a minute. Um, sure. How did his passing, um, how did it affect you personally and professionally, maybe with your work with the studio? Well, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, how do you feel if your father dies? <laughs> it was devastating, absolutely devastating. Uh we loved him very much, and we depended on him. We never realized when he passed that things would change so radically. But uh, unfortunately, that's what happens. I mean, uh, the people that, that took over meant well. They tried very hard, and they, they weren't Walt Disney. And they, they, for many, many years, the, the, uh, the studio did not produce any greatness for a long, long time. They were doing adequate sometimes, but not great. And uh, it was later years, uh, certainly, the advent of the uh, resurgence of, of fine musical scores in, in uh, films like uh, The Little Mermaid and, and uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it, the greatness came back, but it, there was a long period of time with, with a tremendous lack of, uh, let's call it, spark. Yeah, so many people talk about the spark or, or lack of direction. People almost seemed lost as their mentor was gone and, and didn't know what to do. Well, yes, you said it. <laughs> they, they said, well, what would Walt do? I mean, it was, that's not a way to think. You have to say, what would we do? And we want to carry on creativity and, and everything, but let's not just keep repeating what we did in the past and do the safe project. Walt was always taking chances and going further. And so... Uh, I guess maybe the the lack of further thinking. I he, see Walt was such an outstanding storyteller and a super genius, and he didn't have anybody that really was that capable. There wasn't anybody around. I guess uh, I I can't uh, give you exact reasons, but how do you replace somebody as great as Walt Disney? You can't. You just can't. A long, long time has to pass, and then eventually things come together and the right people assemble and and then yes then good great things can happen it took a long time great things are happening now people at pixar are, are geniuses they're terrific but they weren't around then <laughs> there was nobody around then so it didn't happen then now it's happening again i agree and i and i think it's certainly no comparison but i think like walt disney bob Iger is doing what Walt did, which was surround himself by the very best people in the industry. And I think we're seeing, like you said, a resurgence of greatness and creativity. And it's a, it's a very exciting time for the company That's and to true. be a fan. Well, you have to have a great leader who doesn't necessarily have to be creative himself, but at least respect and honor the creative mind and help steer him and help, in, and help guide him, let's say, and uh, guide the ship. But basically, you have to have people sensitive to creative thinking. And that's, that's uh, Iger's doing a great job. I think he's doing a, a wonderful job. He's done uh, a major step forward when he, he said, let's not start this bigger and who, who gets what. Let's, let's work together. And so he and, and Pixar got together and made one, one organization out of it, which is fabulous. I mean, that, that, that's a great step forward. And I think uh, uh, the, the entire uh, industry is, is better off for that. I agree. And like I said, as fans... You know, we also, too, are feeling the wonderful effects of it. And, and like what happened so many years ago, the company's making wonderful films again. And it's also having a trickle-down effect on the theme parks. And you and your brother, of course, not only wrote 
amazing songs for films, but you, you know, beyond the World's Fair attractions, you've also written a number of theme park attraction songs. How did, how were you first approached? What was it like writing that first theme park song? And what was it, if you remember? Well, I think the very first theme park song we wrote was, uh, uh, <laughs> there's a funny story with it. We were invited to go down to a soundstage and, and look at something. And uh, I remember Bob and myself and about five other people came down and we sat on, on uh, bridge chairs on a, in a tropical room that was all dark and everything. And Walt said, okay, turn it, turn it on. So on comes the lights, and we see we're sitting in a tropical room with flowers like orchids, and everything has started singing songs. And then down from the roof came, came birds, and they, the birds started singing. And it was the first audio animatronics experiment that they were doing, and it was called the Enchanted Tiki Room. And we didn't know what the devil it was because it had never seen anything like it before. There were t- carved tiki poles that started uh, chanting, ugga booga, ugga booga, you know, <laughs> all this type of thing. And it was weird. And I remember one of the fellows in the room said, what the devil is this, Walt? <laughs> and, and Walt looked Bob, at Bob and myself and he said, you guys are going to write a song that explains what this is all about. And we said, we are? And he said, oh, yes, yes, you are. And uh, it's going to be a song that explains the Enchanted Tiki Room. Well, all of a sudden, we, Bob and I are looking at each other. And he said, there, there's no parrots. I think if we had a parrot, at least you could understand dialogue and lyrics from him. So we said, if you had a parrot, maybe the parrot could sing it. So Walt immediately said, four parrots. would have a French parrot. We'll have a Dutch parrot. We'll have a, a Spanish parrot. And he was plussing the idea. And he says, now, what kind of a song are we going to do? And I remember the first thing popped into my head was, I said, well, it's a tropical room. Let's do a, a tropical rhythm like a calypso. He says, okay, it's calypso. going to be sung by parrots. <laughs> and he said, I need this right away because we're going to have to start the whole thing with a song. And uh, I remember Bob and I being songwriters. He said, tiki is a great word. If we played with the word tiki, 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 that sounds kind of cool. So he said, what about if we call it the... Tiki, tiki, tiki room. We said, that's it. Okay, you're going to write me that song and explain what it's all about. And with that, we ushered out the door, and we went off to write it in a hurry. And it's the longest-running show song I think it's ever been performed. It's, it's made all kinds of records now. It's 40-some years it's been playing. Yeah. In the tiki, 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 tiki room, that song. Yeah, to call it a classic would be an understatement. Um, and, and yeah, well, that was the birth of it was strictly a need to explain what the tiki room was all about. But once you heard the, the birds singing, "Welcome to the tropical hideaway," they sing in the tiki 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 room. Everybody, you know, starts singing along with them, and that's of course just the fun of it all. It's just uh, an invitation to enjoy yourself, and the birds are, are your hosts, and they explain what the, the, the tiki room is all about in uh, several silly verses that we wrote and funny jokes that Larry Clemens added. So we had a lot of fun doing that. And it's funny to hear just how quickly the creative process took place. You know, you you open your mouth, you say a couple of words, and Walt says, good, that's it, go do it, yeah. and you're, you're off writing songs. Uh, show me the executive today that can do that, and I'll, I'll be amazed, because <laughs> Walt could grasp Two words, an idea, just throw two, and he'd know exactly where you were heading. He could finish it for you. I remember we were so close in, in our relationship with Walt that sometimes when we had an assignment, we'd see him in the hall. We said, Walt, I think we got the idea, and then I'd sing him two bars of a song. And he'd say, yeah, that's it, finish it. I mean, it was just like that, because uh, he knew what we were going to do if we could give him the approach. 
and uh, it was uh, a marvelous symbiosis that we had between us, a, a really understanding of the, the need for a certain statement and, and how we could do it or how we would enlarge on it. Uh, we, we've never had it since. I must say that I've had some wonderful producers and creative people that I've worked with over the years, and they're all inspiring guys. But there's never been anybody like Walt Disney. He was only one of a kind, and maybe one in, in a century comes along like that. And it obviously sh- just shows the the trust that he had in you and your brother, that he could just hear those two bars and know that the rest of what you w- would create, he didn't even need to hear. Well, that, that, yeah, I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of a, a mind he had. He, he, well, he knew us pretty well. He knew his artists. I mean, many times an artist would show him a sketch. He'd say, yeah, that's it. Now work on that. Or I think the chin's a little weak. Uh, do something there. And he would sort of make suggestions. Uh, but he was so... Uh, confident with his team of great uh, uh, animators and his wonderful, he had some wonderful staff writers, like Bill Walsh was a brilliant writer, and he'd say, I need a scene where this thing so happens, and Walsh would go off and do it. And he'd say, yeah, that's that's what we're talking about. That's the kind of a boss he was. He would sort of steer you. And with, with our with our songwriting, it was, it was that kind of a thing. I remember walking down the hall one day, and, and uh, we were writing a song for Maurice Chevalier to sing in, in a picture called In Search of the Castaways and uh, with Haley Mills, which was in it. And uh, we, they were stuck in, a, in, a, in an ombu tree after a big flash flood had come, and they're really stuck and they're hungry and they want something to eat. So this professor, who was played by Chevalier, uh, says, you know, use the, the things we have around us. There's uh, some bird eggs over here and we can fry them on this pan and everything. And he starts building an omelet with, with spices and everything he finds from the tree. And uh, he, he sings this song. And Walt wanted him to be singing a song as he's doing this. So we, we said, we have an idea. And the idea was, enjoy it. And we said, why cry about bad weather? Enjoy it. Each moment is a treasure. Enjoy it. And I sang that little song to him with the melody. That much. He said, yeah, that's it. Finish it. And that was it. And that became a classic Walt Disney uh, moment in, in that film. It was just wonderful when he did that with Haley. They sang a duet together, and it was lovely. But it all started with he heard two lines of a song, and he said, yeah, finish it. And, you know, that song, like most else of what you've written, including the theme park music, is that same happy, uplifting thing. Now, for example, for Carousel of Progress, you wrote The Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. Again, one of my personal favorites. And I have to say, the video of you and your brother singing that at the piano with Walt uh, with the GE jackets on is one of my favorite videos anywhere. <laughs> well, that again was where he wanted to get some more money to finish the, the <laughs> pavilion. It was running over the over budget. And uh, we had just finished the song. And he and this, he didn't discuss this with us. We were just, you know, the, the kids on the block, we were writing our songs. And, and one day he, he called out about three days after we'd played the song for him. And he had said to his classic, that'll work. And he said, uh, on Friday, put a tie on. I'm doing some lead-ins. I want you to come down to the stage two, sound stage two, after lunch. So he said, okay, Walt. And so we wore a jacket and a tie. And as we were being made up, he said, we're going to do something together. They, they pinned the, uh, the GE logos on the back of our jackets. And he was doing a big sales pitch on, on, on uh, what they were doing for the Carousel of Progress. And he wanted us to sing the song. We didn't know he would sing it with us. And he, 
he said, prop the lyric up so we can do it together. So uh, on the piano there, we did one take, really, and sang the song. And he said, you know, kick your heels up when you go off when I tell you to. So, okay, we did that. And there, for the one and only time on film, he actually said, the Sherman Brothers write the wonderful, a lot of the wonderful songs, you know, at the Disney Studios. <laughs> well, he, he said wonderful <laughs> songs to us, but not directly to us. He said it to the GE people. Well, sure enough, he got his money and he finished his, <laughs> his pavilion. <laughs> but we, the, here's again the kindness of, of Mr. Disney. He was so wonderful. He, uh, about two days or maybe a week after we had done this little bit for him, uh, with those two envelopes in our office, and it was 16 millimeter print of the thing that you the, you you love that piece of footage footage of us doing this thing together. And the note said, uh, "This is a little souvenir of the other day. I know that your grandchildren will enjoy seeing this one day." And that was him. That's Walt. He gave that spoonful of sugar. I'm going to start crying now. <laughs> he was incredible. And you know that that just adds to. And I think that's why I love the piece so much. Just a beautiful story that surrounds it because you were unprepared. And there's Walt Disney singing one of the true anthems of, of him and his career and, and everything that he's done and what you've done. And then he tells you to go back to work so he can finish yeah. talking to the GE people, but then does that, that small little gesture that obviously so many years later means so much to you. It certainly does. I'm, I'm telling you, the, the, uh, there were... Manifold, many, many, many times he did these wonderful, wonderful gestures. I think, well, the, the main thing I think was he recognized uh, in Bob and myself, these two pop songwriters, he recognized we had more to offer than just writing pop songs. And I think uh, this was one of the greatest things of all because he recognized we were telling story within the songs. We were saying more than just, I love you, I need you, I want you, I, I, I lost you, <laughs> forgive me. I mean, the, the typical stuff that songs are written about. We were writing about something off the wall <laughs> something you don't expect and that, that was he liked that he liked that idea well we, that, we sort of painted pictures and you did the same with the song that for some time replaced great big beautiful tomorrow you wrote best time of your life again that oh yeah that was inspirational song well again they wanted uh, the ge people uh, had a new president and he wanted to have a new statement and uh, he wanted to say now is is uh, is the greatest time not just uh, tomorrow and so we uh, were given an assignment. Can you give us another inspiring song about today? <laughs> and so we wrote, now is the time, now is the best time, now is the best time of your life. And so we wrote that song, and uh, they loved that. So I think for about 10, 12 years at Disney, in Florida, Disney World, uh, that was the theme song. But then they'd gone back to Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, I'm happy to say. I, I figured you probably liked the original, but for me, I know for so many people, maybe of my generation, I grew up for so many years with Best Time of Your Life, but both songs I enjoyed. And one of the other favorite songs of mine that I remember from a, a kid that I think a lot of people don't remember was the Little Orange Bird song that you wrote for Disney. Oh, and the play. <laughs> Little Orange Bird in the Yellow Tree. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. That was that was uh, the Orange Grove, the Orange Growers of Florida or something were fl sponsoring a pavilion or something, and we wrote a song. For it, Anita Bryant sang it. Anita Bryant, lovely singer. Yeah, yeah, and it would, it's funny because you, you know, there you are. You were writing for characters and people like Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. Now you're writing for singing tikis and flowers and a little orange bird that, that is singing his thoughts. So, well, you know, each one is a challenge, and each one is a, is a, a kind of a 
opportunity. I, I, I always like the idea of just sort of like letting myself become whatever it is that I'm singing. I, I like, like to think of myself as sort of malleable that way. I don't just say, I don't just write about what I think, it's what about what that character thinks. So in a way, you're an, an actor. I know Bob and I both sort of throw ourselves into a, a time period or a time frame or a situation, and not just writing what our viewpoint is, but what that character's viewpoint is. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's a trick, but it, again, it's, <clears throat> it's part of storytelling. It's brilliant, and it actually leads me to where I was going next, because you wrote some songs for Epcot before it opened. Specifically, again, you talk about this intangible thing that you try and define, which is the Imagination Pavilion, and you wrote Magic Journeys, and you've also right. written Making... But One Little Spark... Uh, it... One Little Spark, again, <laughs> is uh, that wonderful thing that the human mind has, and that is inspiration. Uh, how do you explain it? It's, it's, the, it's a combination of everything you've lived, everything you've experienced, everything you've read and heard, until a moment, a split second of time when you fuse it into an idea. And ideas are, are remarkable things, and uh, that's what that one little spark is, uh, inspiration. It's at the heart of all creation. I'm <laughs> reciting my lyrics, but uh, one little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of anything that's new, one little spark lights up for you. Imagination, imagination. That's what it's all about. Yeah, uh, basically... It was, uh, again, a statement sort of culminating our thoughts about Walt Disney. He used to throw so many ideas at his, at his staff and his, and his creative people. And then that one little spark would either light up for you or it wouldn't. But uh, many times it did, and that's what, what the birth of these songs came out of. Yeah, I think one little spark for so many people is, it's not just Epcot's sort of unofficial theme for a song. It really is their sort of personal anthem because it because of the message that it conveys well you see within every human being there's something wonderful it's just you you have to find it and recognize it and then go with it use it and uh, uh, we as human beings have a, a wonderful thing over the animal kingdom because we we can take those ideas because who knows if a, an ape has an idea it has a reaction it has a, a pattern but it doesn't have an idea necessarily but a human being has an idea and he can work with an idea. And so it's a blessing to be a human being. <laughs> it's a great blessing. And uh, we use those little sparks. That's what makes us human. Let me ask you, speaking of the theme park songs, after the attractions opened, did you get a chance to go and see them? Or even now, do you get a chance to go and visit the parks and, and hear some of your songs? Oh, sure. I love it. Yeah, I love when I love to be there when they're singing along with it. <laughs> 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 it makes me feel very good. I... I've uh, always enjoyed that. No, where I feel blessed to, uh, that I had the opportunities to write these things. There are a tremendous amount of very gifted people. I'm sure the people that are listening to this, there's a lot of people out there that have a lot to say and, and, and are dying to say it. And you've got to keep trying and putting your foot in that door and making yourself available because one day something good can happen. It can happen. Uh, I can't guarantee it. Nobody can. Who knows? I mean, if, if Walt Disney didn't like Annette Funicello, would I be talking to you today? I don't know. <laughs> but there it is. All right, true. And I guess I have to ask you, you know, and I know maybe it's an unfair question, about a personal favorite song or accomplishment. And maybe if it's, whether it's one that you're, it's a personal favorite for you or one that you're most proud of or maybe one that has the most meaning for you, what song or songs would those be? 
Well, I think uh, it's so difficult when you have 500 children <laughs> to say <laughs> to your personal favorite, you know, each child or each song in this case has a special story, a special meaning. Uh, I'm very dearly fond of the score to Poppins. I think it's very special because it was a giant step forward. But how could I forget the fact that there was a little rock and roll ditty called Tall Paul that started the whole ball of wax. I mean, that's, it's, you know what I'm saying? And it's a small world which everybody in the world knows this song, and a lot of people want to kill us or kiss us for it. I don't know. <laughs> but there you go. How can I say, what is the favorite? It's an impossibility. I can only say I'm very grateful for the fact that I worked for Walt Disney. I'm grateful for all those opportunities he gave me, and I... I think maybe closest and nearest to my heart would have to be Feed the Birds because that was Walt's favorite. So it's mine too. Yeah, like I said, I know I kind of knew that that it would be hard to sort of pick one, but um But yeah, but that's not my favorite. It's just <laughs> one of my favorites. Yeah. Um you know, obviously since you worked for Disney during that time, you did come back. You wrote some more music for Disneyland's New Tomorrowland. You came back and you wrote for the Tigger movie. And right. I assume that since then you've been doing so much more about with your work on the stage shows. Uh, give us a little bit of, of what you've been doing since your work for Disney. Well, uh, we did some 25 films <laughs> for other producers. I, w- I won't run a list down for you, <laughs> but uh, we, we had the, the joy of writing some wonderful, wonderful uh, 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 books. I mean, uh, adding music and lyrics to some wonderful stories. For example, we worked with uh, Charles Schultz, on uh, Snoopy Come Home, and we worked uh, on, at Paramount uh, with the uh, Hanna-Barbera people on Charlotte's Web, a beautiful, beautiful book uh, that we wrote music for. And uh, we've written a lot of beautiful... And then uh, for uh, United Artists, we did uh, two pictures, the Mark Twain's uh, Tom Sawyer, and then we did Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, two musicalizations of those classic American stories. We've done a lot of songs, and then we went to England, and we did The Slipper and the Rose, uh, which was a, a retelling of, of Cinderella from the prince's point of view, a wonderful, elegant picture with Richard Chamberlain as our prince. And it, we had a lot of great, great experiences writing for other people. But the, the highlights of our life, I, have to, I must say, have to be centered around the Disney product. And uh, we're having worked for Disney uh, on recent things as well. It's, it's kind of lovely that we... Uh, have this wonderful relationship. I know that I've done a lot of interviews for the DVD uh, sections of uh, reissues of, of some of the films we worked on, and that's a lot of fun, reminiscing. I, we did a, a thing with Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke uh, sitting around a piano with me, reminiscing about Poppins for the Disney DVD special edition that just came out about a few years ago. This is the kind of thing that I've been enjoying doing, and I never cease to... to be amazed at how I remember everything <laughs> because it's so vivid in my mind. It's like yesterday. Well, I, I definitely want to direct people, and I'll put a link uh, in this week's show notes where you can find out, to, to go and pick up a copy of your book called Walt's Time. And it really, it's more than just a, a very beautiful scrapbook of your professional career with your brother. But what I enjoyed about the book was it really gives a very personal look at you and your family, and especially the relationship that you had and the love that you had with your father and Walt, as well as now with your wife and children. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's a lovely thing. That, that book was about 10 years, uh, it came out about 10 years ago, and 
I believe uh, it's it's still available. I think you have to sort of go to one of these dot uh, com situations to get it. I I don't know how I'm not involved in the publishing of it, but it's a lovely book uh, called Walt's Time by Robert and Richard Sherman, and it's it's a lovely thing. Uh, by the way, my my son Greg Sherman and my brother's son Jeff Sherman are doing a beautiful. Uh, a documentary on the life of Bob and myself. Uh, it's called The Boys, the story of the Sherman brothers. And uh, Disney is uh, behind it. They're helping them put it together. And it's going to be wonderful. It's going to tell our whole life story, not just the Disney uh, part of it, but the uh, from soup to nuts. And it's kind of a wonderful story, a different. People will be surprised and I think amazed and enjoy it, I think, because there are a lot of things about it that uh, I don't want to give away anything. It's just to say that it's it's it re- resumes uh, our uh, the resume of our our existence. It's interesting. Yeah, and people can learn more. They can go to theboys.com, and I am personally looking forward to seeing this. Really finding out about the growth of the professional and personal relationship with your brother, and, and just the personal aspects that that were so formative for you, and obviously led to the both of you creating. Um, so many beautiful songs for, for so many generations. Well, you've been very kind in saying these nice things about my brother Bob and myself, and I, on behalf of my brother and myself, I thank you very, very much. Well, you, you have to indulge me, if you can, just for a second, because I, I need to just, you know, this is a rare occasion for me, so on a personal note, um, I, I have to say that I, I'm not just in awe of your work, but the music that you and your brother created have honestly helped to define me as a person. The songs that you wrote for your films were so much a part of my childhood, and they were so uplifting and put smiles on my face so many more times than I can count than... I, I'll, I remember singing these songs with my parents, and the songs have truly touched me. They continue to do so, and now that I have children, I'm able to pass them along and see how they enjoy them. So to that, I really give you my most sincere thanks for bringing me uh, and my family so much happiness for so many years. Well, I give you my most sincere thanks. That's very, very sweet. I appreciate that. It is. Uh, it has truly been a privilege to speak with you today. I hope you will always know how important and influential and meaningful your work continues to be to countless millions of families across the world. And this is where I would normally say, well, to learn more about my guest so-and-so, go here and here, but to learn more about Richard Sherman and the Sherman Brothers, visit a Disney theme park or watch a classic Disney film with your family. And when you start to smile, you can silently thank my very, very special guest, Richard M. Sherman. I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Please give my best to your wife, um, and, and thank you so, so much. I hope I have the honor of meeting you in person and shaking your hand someday. I do, too. Thank you. And each day to the steps of St. Paul's, the little old bird woman comes. In her own special way to the people she calls, come by my bags full of crumbs. Come feed the little bird, show them and you'll be glad if you do Their young ones are hungry, their nests are so bare All it takes is tuppence from you Feed 
the birds toppence a bag toppence 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 a bag feed the birds that's what she cries while overhead her birds fill the skies all around the cathedral the saints and apostles look down as she sells her wares. Although you can't see it, you know they are smiling. Each time someone shows that he a surge of deep satisfaction, much as a king astride his noble steed, when I return from daily strife to hearth and wife. How pleasant is the life I lead. Dear, it's about the Wanted children. a nanny for two adorable children. If you want this choice position, have a cheery disposition. Rosy cheeks, no warts, play games, all sorts. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, in a most delightful way. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary, Mary makes your heart so light. You haven't changed a bit, have you? When the day is grey and ordinary. Mary makes the sun shine bright. Oh, honestly. Oh, happiness is blooming all around her. The daffodils are smiling at the dove. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like a big brass band. <laughs> you are lightheaded. It's a jolly holiday with Mary. No wonder that it's Mary that we love. It's super califragilistic, expialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Super califragilistic, expialidocious. <laughs> Because I was afraid to speak when I was just a lad. My father gave me nails a tweet and told me I was bad. But then one day I learned a word to say me ain't a nose. The, the biggest word you ever heard, and this is how it goes. Oh,
chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim tree. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim taroo. Good luck will rub off when he shakes hands with you. Good luck will rub off when he shakes hands with you. Now as the ladder of life has been strung, you might think a sweep's on the bottom most rung. Though I spends me time in the ashes and smoke, in this old wide world there's no happier bloke. Chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chiri. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chiri. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chiri. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chiri. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Some sticks and paper and strings. You can have your own set of wings. With your feet on the ground, you're a bird in flight. With your fist holding tight to the string of your kite. Oh, let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send. It's soaring up, up through the atmosphere, up where the air is clear. Oh, let's go fly a kite. When you send it flying up there, all at once you're lighter than air. You can dance on the breeze over houses and trees with your Pistol and tight to the string of your kite. Oh, 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 let's go fly a kite up to the highest makes life easier <laughs> saves me time and headaches too <laughs> he sorts things out analyzes in a shake my enormous problem to him's a piece of cake he's got a great big memory like an elephant <laughs> utilizes knowledge without end that's why I'm a router for me computer everybody needs a friend what? <laughs> Will make me happy, little orange bird. In the 
Just the right spirit. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman of the Walt Disney Studio. The Sherman brothers have written many of the wonderful songs for motion pictures and television shows. Thanks, boys. Thanks, Walt. Say Thanks, goodbye Walt. to the folks. Bye-bye. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow. <laughs> As I said, that's the spirit. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears, it's a world of hopes, 
and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. 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 It's a small, small world. Just a quick reminder, don't forget that voting is now open for round two of the Adventureland Challenge Contest. You can visit the homepage of the WDW Radio Show at wdwradio.com. Click on the blue box on the right-hand side of the page. That will bring you to the page where you'll see the photo and the captions from the round two contestants. You can vote once per day until 11.59 p.m. on August 27th. Remember, you are helping choose the three people that are going to move on to the final round, and from there, one of them will be crowned the ultimate adventurer and win the VIP trip to Walt Disney World. So help make somebody's dream come true and cast your votes. See ya.